Good morning, church. Uh, it is a Sunday. It is a feast day, certainly. Uh, but if I'm a little more hmm, subdued and scattered today, uh, you know why. Uh, you know, I sat beside my mom in just thousands of church services growing up, and as I got older, uh, playing music together, and it makes me very happy of all the places to be this morning, to be here with you. Uh, it, it is the place where she would want me today, and of all the things to do in the wake of losing um, someone that I love so much and so meaningful to me, to be in God's presence and God's people is definitely the place uh, I want to be, even if it's with some tear-stained eyes today. Um, for the next three weeks, we are going to take a deep dive into the details of the Old Testament book of Esther, and today uh, I'm going to be retelling the first couple chapters of this book together. And because I don't totally trust my thoughts, I'm going to be reading more of these words than fewer of them today. The book of Esther begins this way. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. And 2,500 years later, and a few Xerxes down the road, it's a fair question to ask, which Xerxes? Well, the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. This is a big empire. All the way from India to East Africa. I mean, it contained parts of Asia, Europe, and Africa, this empire. At the time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa, just north of the Persian Gulf in modern-day Iran. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet to end all banquets for his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present for a full 180 days. That's a big party, hey? He displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor of his glory and majesty. Now, last week I mentioned when we looked at the big picture of the book of Esther that Esther is a wisdom book. It is not in the scriptures primarily to give us a bit of historical insight into this uh, part of human history and the history of God's people. It is in the scriptures because it is intended to make us wise and to help us live more wisely as God's people. Now, after this presentation of Xerxes the Great, Xerxes the Mighty, the most powerful man in the world, the emperor of this vast empire, how do you react to him? I mean, knowing he's the most powerful guy in the world, and after he throws a 180-day party for all the other powerful people, paraphrasing the Bible, basically just to show off. One way of looking at it would be like, wow, I mean, that must have been quite a time in history. He must have been quite a guy. That is not the intention of the scriptures. The intention of the scriptures after reading this opening paragraph is for us to feel like, hmm, there's a guy who knows how to show off. I mean, a week-long party is a pretty big party. A month-long party? Epic party. It took this guy 180 days to fully show off how great he was. 
What kind of person takes that kind of pains to show off? A wise person? I would maintain that it takes a spectacularly foolish person to do that kind of epic level of showing off. In the book of Esther, we will meet some wise folks. They are going to be more content, modest, courageous. They are going to be the wise kind of people that knows that if you stick with God for long enough, the tables of this world will turn over and God's love and justice are going to have more to say about our destiny and future than human power and prestige. Uh, I confess to you that I came into this world as the kind of kid that had a great uh, penchant for showing off. <laughs> I, was, I am a jerk by nature. <laughs> okay, it's basically what I'm trying to say. By the time I was in kindergarten, my mom had told me this, don't show off. So many times, the old proverb, pride goeth before a fall, I heard it a million times by the time I was in kindergarten, I did not know what it meant. By the time I was in third grade, I remember this incident very clearly, was taking a math test in my third grade class, and again, I was a a show-off by nature. I was the first one in class done with the math test this day. Like, it was a skills test. So I finished the last problem. I looked up, noticed that the other kids were still working, and here's what I did. I went, ah, and then slammed my pencil down. And then I probably pushed back in my desk and thought I was very pleased with myself. Now, my mom was not in school that day. It was not a hot lunch day. Otherwise, she probably would have washed my mouth out with soap, like right then. But my teacher gently came over, knelt by my desk, and my third grade teacher said, Hey, Greg, don't gloat. Does anybody still use this word, gloat? I mean, it basically means to show off in a jerky fashion. And what my mom had been telling me all these growing up years sunk a couple levels deeper that day. I still haven't quite gotten over it, but that experience helped. When I became a teenager and started playing music all the time, uh, again, every once in a while, I would let people know how good I thought I was or what I could do. And uh, on one occasion, my parents sat me down and said something to this effect. You know, son, when you're really good at something, someone else will tell you. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) Message sunk a couple layers (laughs) further down that day. Unfortunately... uh, (laughs) Poor Xerxes seems not to have parents who uh, gave him that message. (laughs) By the way, there is a reverse of this. I mean, we have 14 people today who are going into prisons uh, around North America. If you want to show off, don't go to prison. Like, this is the reverse of showing off. Can I get a witness? Right? What's beautiful about what is happening today is it is the polar opposite of the worst of human behavior. I mean, 
what people in our community are doing is sacrificing themselves not to show off, oh, I'm such a great person, I'm going to prison, but to show off the message of Jesus Christ and the great art and music and the glory of the message that is in the scriptures. Like, that's what should be showed off every single Sunday. So please pray for and bless the uh, going forth of God's word in our own people today. Xerxes was such a show-off that even the ancient Greeks, who had some epic battles with Xerxes, commented on what a jerk he was. Herodotus, the father of Greek history, wrote this about Xerxes. Of his bad advisors and arrogant plans, there are no end. Everybody knew that Xerxes was a jerk. Is that too mean? I hope not. I think it's the point of the scriptures. So after giving a 180-day banquet, Xerxes was not done showing off. He needed to give a second seven-day banquet, not now for all the bigwigs, but just for all the citizens of the capital. And here's what happened. On the seventh day, now of the second banquet, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded his attendants to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown. By the way, don't picture like a gold European royal crown. This would be like a tall linen crown, a stiff turban encrusted with all kinds of jewels. In order to show off, basically, display her beauty to all the peoples and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Well, well, well. How do you think someone who's a show-off and a bossy pants will react to having their orders defied? The king became furious and burned with anger. So when I was a kid, I think there was a little part of me that was like, didn't quite know how to take this. Because as a kid, we're told... You should obey your teachers, you should obey the government, you should obey your parents. Like, here's somebody who gets a very clear order. Was Queen Vashti wrong not to obey orders? Like, who's the foolish person here? Again, I I was not clear on this as a small child. The scriptures mean us to have the abundantly clear conclusion that Xerxes is the fool and Vashti is the wise one. He is a show-off, and he makes this way out of line, inappropriate demand of his wife while his judgment is impaired to show her off for every single guy in the city because there's a boy's party and a girl's party going on at the same time. And Queen Vashti, of all the ladies who have ever existed, like she should be at the front of the line to be able to say, like, me too, I was married with a guy, to the guy. She is the wise one, And she did the right thing by not showing up. (laughs) Not knowing how to handle his recalcitrant wife, King Xerxes now tries to settle this domestic dispute, albeit a really big one. Well, how do you think someone who's bossy and used to getting their way all the time will settle an argument with their spouse or a family member? What wise thing could he do? He thinks, I know, I'll settle this by writing some new laws. 
if you've ever been tempted to do this at home, <laughs> by going on record, by saying, from here forth, it shall always be this way, that would not go well for you. I mean, if you try to settle a domestic dispute with your roommate, with your spouse, with a parent, with a kid, by just upping the volume or pulling rank, it is not going to go well for you. Can I get a witness? Like, I've tried this a few times in the past. It never goes well. (laughs) This is Xerxes' way. Again, the scripture's demonstrating that at every turn, he is a fool. Uh, Preparing for this, I recall the story from my seminary days. I had a professor who, when he was a small child in the 1950s, recalled an epic battle between his two very conservative parents. Again, early 1950s, think the Ward and June Cleaver era. It was clear the guy wore the, you know, wore the pants in the house. They're having this huge fight at the dinner table with a bunch of kids. It's getting heated. And then this very conservative man said to his wife at the table, because I'm a man and because the Bible says that I am the head of this household, we are going to do this your way. And all the heat and anxiety left the room. And his wife replied, No! Because I'm a God-fearing woman and need to love and respect you, we're going to do this your way! (laughs) My professor had no recollection uh, whose way actually went out. All he remembered was that he had the privilege of growing up with really wise parents who were able to turn the tables from a dispute over who wanted their way to a dispute over who got to sacrifice on behalf of the other. Can you imagine that? I mean, those are wise people. Wise people know that God's way is not to pull rank or bully or show off or get louder or pull a power play or get all political with it. God's people know that the tables will turn on everybody who pursues life that way. God's people know that the wise listen have their own opinion, but know how to appropriately sacrifice and defer for the sake of love. From here on out, I am going to simply read to you Esther chapter 2. It is so great and colorful, pausing for just a few comments here and there. After all of this happened, when King Xerxes' fury had finally subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. And then the king's personal attendants proposed this. Let a search be made, O king, for beautiful young women. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province, again, across three continents, to bring all these beautiful young women into your harem, O king, in the capital of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. 
By the way, what are the odds that the eunuch in charge of the harem supervising all these beautiful young women would be named He-Guy? Like, isn't that the greatest name? This joke only works in English, by the way. But it's such a delicious irony. Uh, so then, let the young woman who pleases the king best be queen instead of Vashti. Shockingly, this advice appealed to the king, and he followed it to the letter. What they propose is a two-part queen selection process. There is the physical beauty portion, and then there is the uh, skills in pleasing the king portion of this contest. Now, there was in the capital of Susa a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai. Now, in contrast to everything we know about Xerxes, his power, his position, Mordecai is a Jewish man who is a thousand miles away from his home country, living in servitude and exile. Not much going for him. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah. This is a tremendously beautiful name, in my opinion. Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who is also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. It was common for the Jews to have a Hebrew name and then in their country of exile to also have an additional name that was fitting of whatever country or culture they were in. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother had died. This is worth pausing over a second. In contrast, again, to Xerxes, who was born into inheriting the biggest empire in planet Earth, Mordecai is born as an exile in a foreign land. And what is remarkable about him is that he took his niece and cared for her and loved her and raised her from her earliest days as a girl. He did not have to do this. He did this because he chose it. He chose to love his niece. Now, what do you suppose is going to happen later in this story when Uncle Mordecai might ask something, maybe even ask something really difficult or courageous of this niece? How do you think she would respond to this man who sacrificed himself, opened his house, and gave her shelter, love, and care every day of her life? How might a woman under those circumstances respond to the request of a man? I'm thinking it might be different than what happened to Xerxes. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, Many young women were taken and brought to the capital of Susa and put under the care of Hegai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Hegai, who had charge of the harem. She pleased Hegai and won his favor, and immediately she was provided with extra beauty treatments and special food. She was assigned seven female servants selected from the king's palace and moved with her attendants into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her Jewish nationality and family background because Mordecai had asked her not to do so. Again, he asks and she is willing. 
Every day, Mordecai walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. He cares. He shows up. He inquires day after day. Now, before a young woman's turn came to go in to King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil and myrrh, six months with perfumes and cosmetics, and this is how she would go to the king. Anything that she wanted was given to her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. Again, this is a two-part contest. And when the moment comes for a beautiful young woman to go into the king, she isn't given the opportunity to set herself apart in some way, to show off, as it were, to distinguish herself. Maybe some extra clothes, maybe some incredibly tricked-out jewelry, something special to make the king go, wow, I've never quite seen this before. Do you get the idea? Every woman is given this opportunity. In the evening, she would go there, and then in the morning, she would return to a different part of the harem. In the care of Shigaz, who was in charge of the concubines, she would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. Now, the Bible, while it frequently is uncomfortably explicit about all parts of human life, in this part of the book of Esther chooses to be quite discreet and full of euphemisms. Following the storyteller in the book of Esther, I'm going to do the same. Now, in the Hebrew language, the verbs that uh, are here in combination translated as to go into is a euphemism that means exactly what you think it means. The author knows that you know what he means and then just leaves it there. You know what I mean? (laughs) If you're old enough, you know what I mean. Okay. So when the turn came for Esther to go into the king... How will she show off? What will she do? She asked for nothing. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. And now the king was more attracted to Esther than any of the other women. And she won. She won his favor and the approval more than any of the other women. She wins both counts of the competition. So, King Xerxes set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. And he proclaimed a holiday. In contrast to Xerxes, the early signs about Mordecai and Esther is that they understand the wisdom of God and how to put this practical wisdom into play even under the extreme and abusive circumstances of life in a foreign land and in the context of this outrageous beauty contest. They still find a way to be God's man and woman in this time and place. Esther, when given the opportunity, resists the opportunity to show off, though she is lovely in every way. And Mordecai and Esther, as opposed to Xerxes bossing his way around his kingdom and his relationship with the first queen Vashti, show a remarkable deference to one another. Esther is about to become the most powerful woman in the world. Right? 
She's more powerful than Mordecai, her uncle. Do you think she's going to pull rank and start bossing him around after she becomes queen? She could, based on her position, but their whole relationship so far is based on mutual love, deference, and sacrifice. This is God's way. I mean, this is God's way for being a boss, for being a leader, for being a pastor, for being a head of a household. Sometimes we get confused about this and think, just because I'm older, I should be in charge. Just because I've been to seminary, I should be in charge. Just because I'm a guy, I should be in charge. Wrong. On every front. In fact, God's word says to guys in particular, when it comes to, in a biblical way, being the head of a household, it says this. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Do you hear in those words that leadership is based on love and sacrifice? And that power and position? Or being bigger? Esther and Mordecai get this because they are God's people. And they put this into practice. Now there's one final uh, little incident at the end of Esther chapter 2, but it is telling. Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Remember, he went there every day to check into how Esther was doing. Now Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality just as Mordecai had requested of her. For she continued to follow Mordecai's guidance as she had done while he was bringing her up. Incredible. Now, during the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry with the king and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to her uncle Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found out to be true, the two officials were impaled upon poles. Life and times in the Persian Empire. All of this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. So in this last incident, Mordecai does something uh, exemplary as a subject. It gets written down. Do you think Mordecai is going to be the kind of person who says, I'm the guy who saved the king? Remember what I did? In fact, if we read into the book of Esther, it quickly becomes forgotten because Mordecai is a wise person who doesn't go around showing off. In summary, I'm going to mention two things about wisdom that I've tried to say seven different ways already. Number one, wise folks don't feel the need to show off. They don't resort to self-promotion, power plays, or taking the first chair as a way of getting ahead. Mordecai doesn't. Secondly, wise folks understand that God's design for the best functioning of human society, families, neighborhoods, countries, is a blessed alliance of men and women working together in a way that we don't dominate each other, 
or boss each other or pull rank on each other. Both of these wisdoms are personified by Jesus himself. If anybody could have shown off in human history, it was Jesus of Nazareth. Right? I mean, he was God in the flesh. Think what you could do as a kid. Is it only me? I mean, the prospects are incredible. Did Jesus ever force anybody to worship him? Did Jesus ever order anybody on their knees in his presence? Did Jesus ever use his right arm to compel the honor that was due him? No, from his first breath as a baby in a stable in Bethlehem to his last breath on the cross, everything about Jesus' life was self-giving and sacrifice. The fact that he showed up is the ultimate act of sacrifice, the act that he died. And he is the wisest. Jesus was a man, of course. He was a guy. He was a male by gender. But in God choosing to become a man in the flesh, at the most crucial moments, it took a partnership of men and women to accomplish the will of God. Jesus' birth happened because a teenage girl was willing to totally surrender herself to the outrageous will of God. Mary of Nazareth, visited by an angel, became literally the portal and the womb by which God came into this world. It's a blessed alliance of us working together. When Jesus Christ came back from the dead, the first person who got the news was a woman with a horribly bad reputation. God trusted her with the best news that there ever is, was, or can be, this woman with a past and a horrible reputation, as if to say, here, now go tell the guys. It's going to take everybody working together to share a message this big with the rest of the planet. And wise and godly people have always understood that this level of cooperation and deference and working shoulder to shoulder and side by side is the way that God has designed it to be. And not only that, but when we put this kind of wisdom into practice, even though there is so much wrong with the world in 2018, even though many of us have tear-stained faces and have lost uh, valuable people and things this very week, when we put into practice this kind of godly wisdom, the tables turn. And graceful things happen amidst the tears and losses of this world. When my mom breathed her last this Friday night, she looked to all the world like the weakest person there could be. I mean, 12 years of Alzheimer's had taken every physical faculty from her. And yet, with one final breath, In the blink of an eye, God has transformed her to the weakest of women to a glory that I can't even imagine yet. That's how God can turn the tables. 
my mom lost the gift of speech. She lost the gift of music. She lost even the gift of being able to walk, sit, use her arms. I mean, at the end, she lost even the most basic reflex of being able to swallow. Everything was gone from her. And yet, in the blink of an eye, God has turned the tables for this daughter of his, and she is now sitting at what the scripture in some places describes as the eternal wedding feast. From not being able to swallow to the ultimate feast in the presence of God, however that is going down right now that I can't even imagine. So I've adopted this rhythm of Wednesday fasts and Sunday feasts. And I confess, there's a bit in me that doesn't feel like feasting today. Lost my mom this week. We're about to put our lovely daughter on a plane to study in France for five and a half months. We'll super miss her. Feel like, <laughs> it's a Sunday where like, there are a lot of losses in the front of my mind. But because Jesus lives and because Jesus loves, this is a day worth feasting anyway. So with some tears, I mean, we're going to have a, we had a great meal last night. We're going to have one final meal together as a family. We're here in worship because our God is so awesome. His wisdom so unending. His grace so deep. Friends, may we be found among the wise, not powerful fools. Some of us have money, great, but it's not the prestige that makes a difference for us or the world. It's about living wisely, banking on Jesus' reputation and sacrificing for each other along the way. For our prayer this morning, I invite you to turn your attention to the screens. Follow along with what is in yellow. God, thank you for the wisdom that is contained in this short little book. May we have the self-respect and moral backbone of Queen Vashti willing to say no to acts that make us uncomfortable or degrade us even when it means putting ourselves at risk. God, may we show the sacrificial love of Mordecai, ready to give up our own comfort and livelihood to support and protect those that we love. God, may we be courageous like Esther, ever willing to risk our own safety for the good of others, and ready to step into the callings you have set before us, even when they scare us. And God, may we even be a little like King Xerxes, when confronted by the error of our thinking or of our ways. Lord, give us the humility to admit our mistakes and make things right. God, in your name we pray, for Jesus' sake. Everybody says, amen.